sexual health services for all women of all ages and all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, dirigo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. I'm Fritz Homans, and meet me every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll be departing on track 145 for a new destination every week, where we'll journey across the country in search of the best toe-tapping blues music around that's guaranteed to make your soul sing. The Blues Station, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4, here on WERU 89.9 FM, and streaming live at WERU.org. Blues to make you feel good. All aboard for the Blues Station. Support for WERU comes from Penelope Shar, MD, integrative medicine practice in Bangor, offering detoxification, intravenous vitamins, bioidentical hormone therapies, and more. On the web at optionsinhealing.com or 217-8878. The time is 10.02 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Sloan. And she is here with us to discuss art and trauma and how healing from trauma can occur through artistic expression and performance and writing. Judith Sloan is an actor, audio artist, writer, radio producer, human rights activist, educator and poet whose work combines humor, pathos, and a love of the absurd. For over 20 years, she's been producing and presenting interdisciplinary works in audio and theater, portraying voices often ignored by the mass media. And this work is now being presented through Earsay, an artist-driven, nonprofit organization dedicated to, quote, uncovering and portraying stories of the uncelebrated, unquote, founded by... Warren Lear and Judith Sloan in 1999, their projects bridge the divide between documentary and expressive forms in books, exhibitions on stage, and in sound and and electronic media. The mission has expanded and deepened, and now she's working with teenagers and refugee teenagers and immigrants, many who come from war zones. And in 2009, she started a new Earsay initiative, Transforming Trauma into Art. And it provides music, theater, and writing workshops to teenagers from war zones and immigrant youth who have displaced, who've been displaced by natural disasters or poverty. So we are here because of, um, of that we're going to find out more about how to heal art, use art for healing trauma. And uh, here we are, Judith Sloan. Welcome to uh, WERU and welcome to Healthy Options. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So lots going on. And yeah. And I think it was inspired by uh, I did uh, several shows of Yo Miss, a performance about kind of unfolding and revealing all kinds of stories and traumas and you know using humor as well and um yeah and so so I've used I've used techniques with myself and also with other people 
That's exactly right. And what I want to talk about, you know, we know we've done a lot of work here in um, Healthy Options to um, we've done a lot of work with Healthy Options to talk about um, trauma. And we've talked about uh, the whole physiological aspect of trauma, how what one experiences can um, can get stuck in the body. Yeah, that's and, for sure. And when that happens, um, we perceive life in a particular way or we get stuck in a particular way. And what I'm interested in and what we want to talk about now is our um, – is the way that you approach working with some of these refugees, these teenagers, and in, in our own personal stories, um, to transform that? So, what happens when you you get a new group of kids? You get you know you're in a particular environment. How do you step in there? How does how do you approach this? Well, um, my training is my original training is in theater. So, when I was a teenager, I was in several different shows, but I remember having a couple of voice teachers and physical movement. And I I remember being uh, a teenager and a young adult, like 20, 21, 22, and doing a lot of physical theater exercises, but also, um, you know, when you're an actor, your body is your instrument. So where you move your arm and where you move your... Uh, knee and where you hold your body is really all you have. And so if you tend to lean on your hip or slouch your shoulders or turn your head to the side, you learn to undo that. You learn to find a neutral space. And so for anybody who's listening who does Alexander Technique or any other, or yoga, you know, you learn to find that center. And I remember one time working, I was probably about 20, I was working with an older actress, and I was so emotional. I mean, um, roller coaster emotions. And as things would open up, like you open up your chest, you open up your back, and that idea that your body holds grief or your body holds memory, I think is really true. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I found myself even being able to tap into the grief of losing my father when I was 12 and he died suddenly. And also other things happened after that that were really stressful and re-traumatizing and we lived in New Haven and things were really chaotic and it was somewhat apocalyptic at that time and the schools were really dangerous and I was making a lot of decisions on my own and where am I going to go to school so it was always like I got to run to the next thing before I can think or feel and so those kinds of exercises were releasing a lot of a range of emotions. And at the same time, I was somewhat hysterical on stage. (laughs) I mean, I heard somebody uh, before you announce that I was a comedian. And I guess people think of me as a comedian sometimes, even when they see Yo Miss, because there are many, many funny things in it. But I don't consider myself a comedian, but I consider myself a very funny person (laughs) at times. But I used to, when I started, I was just, I would go through like laugh, 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 laugh. And I also saw a lot of humor in the darkness and in in loss. And I used to make sick jokes all the time, you know, that uh, part of grieving was anger. And I was so mad at my father, I could have killed him, but I couldn't, he was already dead. You know, <laughs> so I would make these horrible jokes. And 
I think that when I when I recognized that in myself, I started teaching and realizing that if that was happening to me, then that was probably happening to other people. And I think it's it's fairly common, you know. Um, so you're but you're working with a very particular. Well, I've worked in jails and I've worked with kids who are really um, I think that the work in the jails when kids have been told that they're nothing, if you're told that you're an idiot, you know, from the time that you're little or that you're never going to get anywhere. And if your life circumstances are showing you that you can't get anywhere or you're being treated, you know, most of the kids that I worked with in jails were black and it really is true. Black lives matter. It's not about all lives. It's about the way black people are treated. And if you're constantly treated that way, it it's enraging, you know. Um, so when you and wa- so you yeah. see people try something new at 15 years old or 16 years old, and because they can't do it right away, they're getting really frustrated, and their whole bodies are like. <laughs> And so I know that people listening can't see what I just did, but my entire shoulders went up. Total and tense. you see people do that, and you think, okay, just relax. It's very hard to learn yeah. something new that when you get older, when you get frustrated, depending on how you learn to learn. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in a jail and teaching these boys how to juggle, and there was this whole thing going on. like, I can't do this. I'm never going to get this. And so I stopped them, and I asked them, well, do you play basketball? And almost all of them played basketball because it's a city game and it's something that you can do with little space and there's a lot of hoops around and even in projects and stuff and at school. And so I was asking these guys, well, when did you learn how to play basketball? When I was five years old. I said, all right, you're five years old. What did you do when you were five? You know, uh, oh, how long do you think you went out? How many times do you think you threw a ball? How many, you know, hours. And they said hours. They would just stay out there and do it over and over because little kids will repeat and repeat and repeat. And that's how you learn. And if you see a little kid, if you see a baby learn how to walk, they don't give up after the first second of falling. You know, they fall, they get up, they fall, they get up, they fall, they get up. And little kids want you to repeat everything too, which sometimes can get annoying, right? No, I'm not going to repeat that, but I know you want me to repeat that. You know, but they can do it because that's part of learning. And somehow at 15 and 16, a lot of these guys were had been told they were idiots for so long that there was a disconnect of, of course you can't do it in the first 10 minutes, but if we give ourselves an hour, we can probably get it. And so, of course, they did because I had faith because I knew how I learned because they took it step by step and broke it down. So you were able to look at the body and look at their their whole presentation. Well, they were very aggressive. I actually yes. never thought of a tennis ball as a weapon before, but um, I remember I had all these tennis balls and these two kids were like using them as like, you know, just really throwing them hard at other kids. And I was like, no, you can't do that. And yes, there was a guard in the room and all that stuff. So that stopped. But, you know, that that if the only way you know how to use something is aggression. And then there's one other story that happened when I was in a jail, I was doing an improv. And if you're doing theater, 
um, any kind of improv, even if it's com- and if it's comedic, for sure, you have to say yes to a lot of things. You have to try things. You have to fail. You have to keep going. You have to be open. You have to be completely in the moment. You know. Um, Oh, God, I was doing a performance this weekend at a theater conference in Maine, and right in the middle of doing this scene about being in jail, this unbelievable bell went off for the lunch, and they had warned me, too. And I was thinking, I think I said to the I said to the audience, well, okay, it's just like prison. Anything can happen, because that kind of stuff happens in prisons. You know, things go off when you're not expecting them. And I remember doing this um, improv where... Part of why I was teaching it was because you have to all agree to work as an ensemble. You have to agree for this particular exercise to work. And somebody is trying to find something in the room, and the only way they know what they're doing is working is by how much we're clapping for them. And their only job is to listen and move and a lot of people can't slow down and listen because they're thinking, oh, I wonder what they want me to do. Oh, I wonder if I should pick up this pen. And the minute you start thinking that, you stop listening. But right as this kid was getting going, and he was totally game and kind of joyful, and the regular person who was there all the time, and this was an alternative sentencing institution, said, oh, he's so stupid. He'll never get it. And I watched this boy, he was like six foot tall, just... Just collapse and shrink. Yeah, and of course he wanted to quit right there. And I didn't know what to do because they have to be with the guards all the time. So whatever you do when you're in a prison, you know, you're negotiating, what am I doing that might hurt somebody tomorrow? So I said, oh, well... Let's just try it, you know. I've done this before, and if for now, even if you feel like you're not going to get it, um, let's just try it, and let's try these rules again. And I went backwards to to the beginning again. And, of course, he got it. And it was an incredible moment, right? I got it, miss. Watch. And people are so excited. So you transform right then. There was a new body learning. So, so did he then, now perk up? Did his body look different? For the moment, sure. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't know. Well, then you have to ask yourself, okay, will that plant a seed? I remember I had a teacher once that said, this was a theater, total theater problem solving, who said, um, well, if you can have a successful moment in an improv or finding a character nuance or a gesture once, then you learn how to make that successful moment. And so then you learn how to problem solve again and make another successful moment. It doesn't mean that you don't have lots of failures. And so I think that you can learn by learning, learn from learning. And I think people do learn from having successful moments. So at least if you can have an aha once, the likelihood of having hope that you'll have another one exists. Is it definitely going to happen? No, nobody can guarantee that, especially when you're in systems that the forces are really against the most vulnerable people. So transitioning from that to working with immigrant and refugee kids was not it was not that different. But a lot of immigrant kids, you know, they're completely driven, striving. They have nothing. They don't have some of the I mean, the black immigrant kids from Haiti and from West Africa don't have the 
um, institutionalized racism baggage that a lot of black American kids have. And so they come here and they're like many other immigrants who are either from Russia or China or, you know, wherever, Mexico, it really doesn't matter, um, uh, who have that kind of we got to build it from scratch ethic. And so there's actually a lot of motivation but even within within those kids, there's also a lot of fear. So I remember seeing a girl. Well, this has happened several times where I've seen kids cower or hold on, like almost unconsciously hold on to the curtain or hold on. You know, you'll see somebody in the side and they're like holding the curtain or they're, you know, using they do this thing with their feet where they roll their feet and they kind of balance on the outside of their ankle of their of the foot which is completely ungrounding and so i started seeing that a lot of kids were doing that so what does that mean and then how uncomfortable people were getting when i asked them to put their feet really solidly on the ground and to take space and then for a lot of girls no matter what culture you're from seriously taking space people get they laugh they get nervous. They're like, ah, oh, my God, look what I just did. I took space. And sometimes it's just about taking space physically because you're seen as being too powerful or your presence is too big for, you know, I'm five foot three. And some guy recently said, oh, you're my height. And then he came up to me. He was like he was five seven. He said, oh, I thought you were taller. You know, I'm not. So these kids for for what however they did it they got to the united states so yeah here so that's a particular ways. right so that's that and, and so some they're people, coming yeah some like one girl they're, she, well they're coming from a particular they bring whatever they bring with them which, which is seen, extremely varied and but they've seen things and sure and also and, they're in new york and they're in new york so that whole body and not language, in like not this is not like um there's also the UN school, which is ambassadors' kids, and right. so I also work with NYU students. So one of my NYU students had been in uh, Turkey in school. She was great. It was great to have her, but she was in an upper class international uh, community. So everybody was ambassadors' kids. Do you know what I mean? Uh, no, I know that was a different thing. Well, yes. And her body, you know, and she was great with them because she was so totally free and. 22 years old and closer to their age, you know. And also had an immigrant experience. So, and spoke another language. Right. <laughs> but when I, when you walk in and you're looking at this, how how are you approaching the the curtain holder? How, you know, you're giving them exercises to come in the body and then what happens? I mean, are there, is there, do people get re-triggered? Is there well, sometimes, sometimes when... Sure, it depends. You know. It's all the range, you know. There's the people that want to come and they want to dive across the stage and fly. You know, I had this boy who was so game for anything that it was almost too much. I said, okay, now, Kai, we, his name is Kai Lu. We have to pull you back now. And then he would memorize everything and do monologues by himself. And I asked him one day, I said, well, that's interesting. You know, he said he did monologues by himself. And, and most of the kids that I work with either live with an aunt and uncle, their parents are still in their home country, 
or they live like one kid that I worked with who we wrote about in Crossing the Boulevard, which is a book on new immigrants and refugees. Uh, this kid lived in a one bedroom apartment with a brother and a baby and his parents. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him, like, where are you doing your homework? And he said he learned to tune everything out. So some of the kids, it's interesting, like coping mechanisms, right? He didn't need to put headphones on, but he would be able to sit in the living room with all this chaos going on around him, and he would tune everything out. And it's interesting, he ended up getting a dual master's degree in ESL and English as a second language and in math. And he couldn't work anywhere because he was undocumented. So, you know, I've stayed in touch with him for 12 years and then followed him. And then he got the paperwork through that DACA program. And now he's teaching math. So, you know, when kids come in, they're, they're all different. So you have to look and see and how is this person. And I try and get everybody on board for certain exercises by arranging particular games that have a physical focus that go from A to Z. So I'll never have them do something really, really hard right at first, but we get everybody kind of on the same page. It's like a language, right? Give me an an example. What's an exercise? Okay, an exercise I do with them because everybody's from a different country and also nobody can pronounce each other's names, not just... (laughs) I mean, nobody can pronounce my name either. Not nobody, but some kids can't because they don't have the TH Mm -hmm. in their language. So I remember one time a bunch of kids kept calling me Judas, and I said, no, no, no. Um, (laughs) Because the Indian kids call me Judit, which is fine. So I said, just do Judit. That's better than Judas because they don't do that Judith. And so you start watching even that. How is my mouth moving? So one exercise that I do is... um, it's a very common theater exercise where you pass a movement around a circle and you try and stay extremely focused. And I do it in several different ways. I pass it to you. You pass it exactly that way. And you see who can copy, who has the attention span to not just goof around and do something else. And then you try and pass it faster. And then you try and pass it where everybody freezes in the gesture. And then I ask everybody to come up with a gesture and say their name. And then we all repeat the name, you know, because it's hard to remember all these names. And so everybody has a gesture, everybody has a name, and then it goes around. So it would be Rhonda, 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 Rhonda. You know, however people pronounce it, but they have to do the same gesture that you did. And then I'll often do, my name is Judith. I was born in New Haven. I live in Sunnyside, Queens, something like that. So, you know, you'll have a kid say, uh, and they all do it with a gesture. So it's like, my name is um, Dan Fong. I come from uh, Fujian province, and I live in Elmhurst. You know, whatever their gesture is, we all do it. So, A, they get to hear where they're all from and where they live in what neighborhood because all the neighborhoods are really different. And then when I hear their neighborhoods, I also, because I know the borough so well or I know where they're from, I know how long it takes them to get to school. Oh, this person, it only takes 20 minutes. This person, it takes an hour and 45 minutes to get to school. Um, When I was doing a workshop here in Blue Hill at GSA, I did the same thing. 
ah, this person lives in Surrey, it takes them this long to get to school. When you know how long it takes each individual to get to school, you also know what they do before they get there at 8 o'clock. Even though everybody arrives at 8, they have a different experience right. from 6 a.m. And they to carry eight. that with them into the classroom. Of course, of course, everybody does. By the way, I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we're listening oh. to Healthy Options, and this is Judith Sloan. And she is speaking about art and trauma and how she will integrate that into her work with teenagers, immigrants, and adults. Uh, and adults. And I have to tell you, just anybody. anybody. It can really be anybody. I mean, I've worked with upper class kids from NYU or adults, and people carry things. And, and I've learned to warn people, um, kids too. You know, if you if you're doing something like this and you're opening, opening everything, opening up and you're, you're she's opening her arms and up. you're breathing and you're suddenly getting all this oxygen into places that you normally don't, if you end up crying, don't judge yourself. Because what happens is if people have an emotional reaction to a physical thing, then you think what an idiot I am, you know, I can't believe I'm crying. And so I know that all that stuff happened with me. I also think you have to be careful because you meter it out. And and how how much am I going to push somebody to do a particular thing? And some kids are really close to their emotions. And those kids are really good actors because you have to be close to your emotions. And then you want to close it up. Um, Boundary. A good... Close keep it them up. safe so when they go out back in the world. Correct. And I mean, it could be anything like, okay, here's this totally bizarre situation. I had one, two, three, four, five, six kids, right? One from Russia, three were from China, one from Senegal. Um, and then I had a, a Puerto Rican singer and a woman singing in Yiddish because we were talking about lost languages. <laughs> And some of them come from countries where there are lost languages, multiple lost languages. So the kids from Ecuador, maybe they barely speak Quechua, you know, but maybe their grandparent does, but they can't really speak to their grandparent because that language is not being used. So we were doing all this stuff, and then finally they told me that they didn't – we were teaching them how to sing. Singing is also a very particular thing. And if you can't hear, we don't – you know, and you're flat, well, that's not good. You don't want to be out there singing. But at some point, they just didn't feel confident enough to sing, so we got some singers. And we got some really good musicians to play behind them for a particular movement and performance piece in front of a 450-seat theater. And they only had to do the choreography, the movement, and – it was like bass and dole and I mean it was like rocking, right? And I had performed first and then my friend Caridad de la Luz performed afterwards and then the kids. And at the end of this thing, this one boy bear hugged me. It's like, why are you bear hugging me? Um, and he was just so excited. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, he's got to be careful because – the people who get that high from performing, it's great to feel that high from performing. You know, I do too. And the music is kicking. So, yeah. Um, but the people who get that high from performing, you know, when are we going to do it again? It's like, okay, we're going to do it again and we're going to do it this way. You know, for people to recognize that it still work. And so, you know, you asked me something about how I work with kids. There's another thing that I'm really careful about, which is um, 
I don't bring them out to perform anywhere unless it's super tight and safe. Safety. So that I think it's safety. But it's also what's safe is if you have a very, very tight performance that, I mean, technically, uh, emotionally. So I don't want anyone in the audience to be sitting there thinking, oh, well, that was pretty good. But of course, we're going to let them slide because they're just learning English or something like that. You know, I said, no, that's not what we're going to do. Because what I found for myself, and I think, um, and again, it's, it's like a learned experience that I remember going out on stage before something was ready with a very, um, oh God, difficult story. It was a really difficult story. And it didn't work. It got very, 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 you know, slammed basically. And I think that it was, the art of it wasn't ready. And so I was talking to this woman who is a, dramaturg so she's been like a critic she used to be an agent and um I just saw her this past weekend and we were talking about that process and that if I was going to tell really difficult stories that the aesthetics of what I was doing had to be so high and and yes that is a way of being safe and I did a lecture at a um a conference of therapists recently and was making the distinction between drama therapy, art therapy, and critical performance. And so, fine, everybody can participate in a theater class and have fun, but I wouldn't necessarily put that on stage and what we choose to put in front of an audience because you re-traumatize people in a horrible way if they do a crappy performance. Mm -hmm. And so I just won't let kids do that. And I notice that there are some people who will tell people, oh, that's great, when the kids know it's not great. And so when somebody says, now that's moving in the right direction, you feel safer because they know that it's not ready yet, but they're not telling you it sucked. So it also comes, again, coming back to the nervous system, the uh Right. The post the 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 sympathetic and 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 parasympathetic nervous system. We want to have that settle. So a lot of the things that you're doing with these kids is opening things up, and they know if they know what the body sensations feel like, even if they're not talking about it in an oh they a drama do, class. They do talk about it at the end. Like one time, I said to them, like. Um, I remember we always do a wrap up. So what did that feel like? What was that? You know, how did that feel? And this, I remember somebody said, um, well, it makes you feel very vulnerable. I was telling them the, if you can get to a vulnerable place with technique on stage, it has a lot of power, which is different than being, feeling vulnerable in your life. And one of the kids said, well, what does vulnerable mean? Because they're just learning English. And this other boy said, oh, it means, because I don't ever answer what anything means. I see if somebody will come up with a definition. He said, uh, it's, it means that you go out there and you could get hurt, which was a really interesting definition. You know, people will have interesting definitions of things as they're learning them because it's true. 
it means that the possibility that you could get hurt. And so then you have to say, well, what is going to protect you is technique and craft. And so if you can learn the craft, just like playing the piano, if if you can, but somehow people think, you know, oh, anybody can act. It's not true. And, you know, it's just like playing the piano. You practice, 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 and then you get that in your body. So then you get that gesture in your body. And it's the same with character accents and voices. It's it's physical. It's muscle memory. It's all muscle memory. I'm triggering three different MIDI controllers on stage, and somebody said to me, oh, how long have you been doing that? It's so smooth. It's muscle memory. It's practice. You know, so when I talk in English... I have to use so much energy of me. Mm-hmm. In your language, you don't have to think. Mm-hmm. But when you use English words, you have to think and talk. So it's like two kinds of energy using. And I thought that was an interesting um, <laughs> description of what it's like. It's two kinds of energy. I'm thinking, I'm moving. And theater is like that, too. You're always thinking and you're moving until you're re- just reacting, you know. And we're doing that. Every day as well. Not as focused, not, but... Yes, um, we are. Yes. Yes, we are. We are. We're as focused. Well, I think people have to do it every day. I remember running into a friend of mine up here and you very, very small towns, right? So I, I told him a joke. I said something about when I moved to New York, I was 30 years old. I, you know, literally like had no family. I was busting out and doing my career I was alone I was you know it was a couple of I was I found myself on a street corner crying and I thought well luckily it was New York because nobody noticed and he (laughs) told me this story that when his wife died he didn't want to do anything that he had to think you know like a a challenging thing and I said oh I actually think that that's a symptom of grief it gets harder to do certain things like I had a really hard time doing math for some reason and numbers and certain things well when you've had a trauma math and numbers are the last thing to come back because it's a different part of the brain I I actually was just discussing that with someone yesterday who's a uh, behavioral psychologist who we'll be speaking with next show by the way so but but math so that is very cool yeah so no that happened to me i couldn't do math and i was really good at math and so all of a sudden you can't do math and like deep grief right and um and and just to to clarify for those people that are listening my grandmother committed suicide when I was nine in our house, and my father died when I was 12, and then we had a fire. So year, it took me years to write about that in any way or even to say it like that without sobbing. And? And make art out of it. I mean, that was my choice. Right. But it was and, a, and then there were people walking around who don't even know that there's an option to make art out of it. Well, of course, and, and you, and I this is who you're kind of plugging into in a way. You're but I, your story right. to to kind of help others. But the odd thing about me, is I didn't know there wasn't an option not to do it. It's the opposite. It's like you right. know, I've always been a writer and an artist since I was a kid, so it was the option. And also, I think even if you're not going to put it out there professionally as a quote unquote commodity or product, that. The process of writing um, can help you organize things, you know, um, 
and organize experiences. And so then it makes me very aware. I remember going into the women's prisons, heightened, hyper aware of what education does for people. And I wasn't talking about being able to read the street signs. I was talking about being able to write your way out of problems. And that if you can't write and read your way out, it's very difficult because you can go in a loop. But if you write down something and you look back at it and you say, huh, I wonder what I meant by that, you know, um, then you can you can kind of heal and go forward. And I also think you have to have guidance and tenderness around you so you can make a lot of mistakes because my profession is not necessarily tender. And so you can put yourself out there and be in a, like a very bullying atmosphere or a very high stress or very critical or very snotty. Um, really, that right. is the very snot- un- unpleasant. Well, snotty is the word. Um, <laughs> can we like, say that on the radio? I, guess I we hope can. so. I By mean, the way, what blow your nose? You can't say that. <laughs> you are listening to WERU. This is Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman. My guest today here is Judith Sloan, an actor, radio producer, audio artist, and teacher. And we're talking about the healing power of art and theater. And you were talking about writing as a vehicle out. And also what we talked about earlier was how the body, how working physically can also transform a lot of, of what we're talking about, yes. the losses, the traumas. And you can do both. But I think if you're just sitting and writing, then, you know, you, you can also get stuck physically, you know. And I think that that's all... You know, it's like a loop, right? It's And it's also a spiral. If you run or you exercise or you do something and you make yourself feel better, then you're more likely to make something happen. If you're making something happen, you're more likely to be physically active. You know, all of those things go uh, around, you know, hand in hand. So I didn't finish that story for anyone who's really keep hanging going, in there and listening to the whole thing. So I was telling my friend that, you know, I started crying. Luckily, I was in New York. Nobody noticed. And he was telling me that when his wife died, so he couldn't do math, you know, but he didn't want to do certain kinds of work. You know, you, he wanted to hide. So he got a job as a janitor and he was uh, polishing the floor. <laughs> in the school. And he said he would like go through the school, polishing the floor, crying. And it was a place where he could work and cry. (laughs) And so, you know, just the ways that people figure out, how am I going to deal with this? And in terms of what you were saying before about acting, we all have to do it every day. Especially, I think, in our particular American culture, people don't know, we don't have like a rituals and process for grieving. When people die, we're so afraid of death. You know, we pump people up and keep them alive for a really long time. And even when it just seems, ooh, that's kind of cruel. Um, so, you know, I think that if you are a person that deal has dealt with a lot of loss and death, I know for me as a kid, it was almost like I had a stain on me. You know, it's like, who is that stained person? And it's just a matter of circumstance. And so for me, working with immigrant teenagers, I feel very close to intuiting when they feel lost. So I'll I'll sometimes write monologues for them. You know, I once wrote a monologue where I had a line for a kid to say, do you know to the audience what it's like? 
not to have your parent here, for them not to see you. And it was great. And I wrote it, you know, somewhat about myself. And all the kids wanted to do that monologue, you know, which was great. Um, I think I do have a clip of something that I could probably play off my sure. phone into Let's the microphone. Can do it. So this is after I'm in jail. I'm telling these boys, you know, you should write. Uh, they're asking me, what good is this going to do us when we get out? And I keep trying to come up with reasons, like sticking with something until you finish. It's about not giving up. But what good is this going to do us? Problem solving. That's what we're doing. And clearly I'm guessing, right? Um, but what good is this when, we're gonna, when we get out? And then they curse at me, which I won't play on the radio. And, um, and then this happens. What good is this going to do us? Finally, I say, I don't know. You have anything better to do right now? Then I say, you never know. Maybe you'll discover something that can keep you sane. S says he wants to go back to Rikers. I don't believe him. He says he wants to go back to jail, jail, so he doesn't have to do all this school. He wants to watch TV. I believe him. He tells me he's a sociopath. I don't know what to believe. K desperately wants to get out, but when he does, he'll be 15 and have nowhere to live. S wants to juggle with the balls I use, but I say no. K says, those are the props, man. You gotta respect the props. You'll miss... What about you, miss? You gonna write something about you? I write a piece about being 12 years old and in the seventh grade about my father dying over Christmas vacation, about a big black girl named Mary who was 16 and in the seventh grade, everyone was scared of her, even the boys. And about how the day I came back to school, Mary kicked the boy out of the seat across from me and said, Hey, Sloan, I hear your father died. I couldn't speak. All I could do was nod. Mine too, she said. And how I was one of the few white kids at that school who didn't get beat up. You lucky, miss, says G. Lucky because of Mary? No, because you had a father that loved you. At the end of the day, I'm lucky. I'm going home to a big, strong bed and a warm, comfortable man. They're going back to their cottages. 24-hour guarded life. What it takes to get out is in half of what it takes to stay out. What it takes to get out is in half of what it takes to stay out. Here they have. So, uh, in that little clip, there are two lines that I ended up doing in a men's prison not too long ago without the music, but uh, a lot of the guys came up to me and said, What was that line? I said, You mean maybe you'll discover something that you can keep you sane? And they said, Yeah, that. And what was the other one? What it takes to get out isn't half of what it takes to stay out. And when I wrote that, I was thinking about everything. That whatever you have to extricate yourself from, um, it takes a long time to get out. And I guess what's, you know, there have been so many stories about women who come forward years after they've been raped or abused um, and or molested or harassed even, right? I mean, Anita Hill, um, she wasn't raped, but she was sexually harassed on the job. And years, years. And so what's never really part of the conversation that bothers me is that, well, first of all, how much guts it takes to say anything about somebody in power, especially when it's someone in power the toll that the secrecy takes on their body if you are really keeping that kind of abuse secret and 
all of the things that they do to cover that up physically and emotionally. And none of that ever gets addressed. Um, You know, yes, they should be given tons of money. You know, it's like I remember... To to, to heal. (laughs) Yeah, I remember one time somebody said to me... um, I was doing a show in, in in Scotland at this festival, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and this guy came up to me and Warren and was talking to us afterwards. And somebody said, do you feel like you want reparations from, you know, the Nazi, you know, the, all of that stuff about the Holocaust? I said, well, sure, but it's a ripple effect with my family because, uh, I mean, if I had killed myself, Hitler would have won, right? You'd got like, my grandmother died, my father died, then I would die. You know what I mean? It's just, but, you know, how far does that stuff go? But yeah, that kind of genocide took its toll. And I don't remember who the author is or the theorist, um, but maybe somebody listening does, who said that the last nail in the coffin of genocide is silence. And so I think that we're now living in a world where the people who are the descendants of genocides or recent or, well, look what's happening in Syria. I mean, it's really like, it's like overwhelming how many people are fleeing. But um, there was this, I don't know if you saw this article about the um, First Nation Native American woman that won Miss Universe. Yes. In Canada. And so she's very outspoken. And so years ago, that would have been, oh, no, keep your mouth shut. No, she's extremely outspoken about indigenous rights. And so, well, you know, it's about time because the toll that all of that takes on people's bodies, right, and their psyches for so many years of keeping silent is huge. It's just huge. So let me ask you, when you, you're going into schools, yeah. you're not doing, quote, therapy. You're doing no. a, you're doing a, uh, art. An, art, an art class. You're doing an acting class. And you see these kids and you see these adults or mm-hmm. wherever. And um, some, as you said, have the emotions very close to the surface and Correct. they're there. And some, I would imagine, are pretty closed. Correct. So how would you open that up? Because what we're talking about, I think, and for those who might be resonating with some of this or something stirring inside, that there's this this idea that it's important to acknowledge or somehow important to get to some expression that allows relaxation of the nervous system. So... Well, I had a, I had a, how do you, how I'll do you give you an example. I had a student that didn't want to perform and didn't want to do anything, so I made her the stage manager because she, what she really wanted was to be part of the family, and she really wanted to be part of the community. Now, I do have students like that. They're, they can't act. They, they really can't. They can't move. They don't, and I'm not there to make them do that because right. I think that's a can of worms that you have to be really careful. Right. And I also think that if people are guarded, there's probably some pretty good reasons for it. And so maybe that's the survival mechanism that they need. And so I try and find something that they can do that suits them because I think if you find one thing that suits you, then you do that. Um, I work with an engineer, and he likes being behind the scenes. And one time I said, oh, do you think you could do this? So we ended up recording his voice and making him part of the show that way, but he would never want to perform with me. 
you know, I remember somebody saying, oh, why don't you just have him do it? And it, because he doesn't want to perform. So why would I do that to somebody? You know, oh, I acted in high school. Trust me, my acting days are over, you know, or stuff like that. Or people that right. say, no, no, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And when someone says, no, no, I don't want to do that, I listen. I think that's the key is deep listening. And even if they're not talking, how do you listen to what you're hearing? Okay, this is like synesthesia, I'm mixing up my senses. But um, how do you listen to what you're hearing by watching somebody? And, you know, and I try and sort of protect the space as much as possible. Um, in At this point, in certain places, I'm trying to make sure that I'm in touch with other people at schools. So not everybody has this luxury, but I work with small groups of students, five, seven, nine, and I think you can get a lot done. Of course, some people think, well, oh, such you're only impacting so few students. It's actually not true. Then those five go work with other five, and then those nine go work with other nine because there are some projects that are different. So, you know, our organization runs several writing projects. Yeah, ERSA runs several writing projects in the school, but those are 25 kids, and they're not expected to get on stage, and they're not expected to do something quite so high pressure because when you put people under stress, you start seeing who they are, right? Um, But the good thing about having a small group is that if you build something together, even if, if we were building a house, the same thing would happen. You ask somebody for the hammer. This is a metaphor for theater. I'm not, you know, you ask somebody to move their arm or to move around you or to, you know, engage with you as a character on stage and you trust them. And so you have to build that. You have to build that trust so that you can do that dance together for the moment that you're performing. But, you know, builders do it together all the time. Um, and people that are oblivious are very difficult to work with because you need to, you need to hone that skill of awareness. You know, and I've made mistakes with myself. And when I think about those, I just, I'm devastated. You know, I did something in a gym once and it was horrible. It was just horrible. (laughs) It was just, (laughs) that's probably what it sounded like. Yeah. I think they made a movie about that. What? Cafetoriums. (laughs) (laughs) That's what a friend of mine calls those things, cafetoriums. Yeah, there's no acoustic. There's no hope. Yes. I say just hold up a big sign, you know, forget it. Or do dance, mime, anything, but nothing with sound. Mm -hmm. And my stuff is so dependent on sound that you're clueless if you can't hear it. Now, I'm just having a a thought about trauma. You know, you have some kids who don't, who they have in high schools or that's where their theater is. And they're trying to do something good. And and now they get traumatized because their venue doesn't allow anyone (laughs) to hear them. My gosh, they better... Immediately, well, we go into a better, a better. Well, we uh, don't. I'm class very, situation. very careful, you know, about where I do things in terms of theater. Yes, there are certain things you can do, you know, yeah. and also you can do things in a classroom. We turned a little room into a black box theater because there was going to be a family night and people were touring around. And I said, "Oh no, this won't work in there." But we'll take the theater. We'll take a classroom, move all the desks. We hung a black curtain. We got two little lights. I have a dimmer board. And we made a little tiny theater. And I said, okay, we can only fit 20 people in here at a time. But 
they just did a rolling performance at 6 o'clock, 6.40, 6.45, you know, whatever yeah, it was, right. 6.20. And so the audience knew that they could come in and then they leave and then they do the show again and then they leave and then they do the show again. Which is great, too. It was also good for them because I was bringing them to the New Yorican Poets Cafe, yeah, which is a pretty high-pressure venue, the next day. So I thought, well, if they get to do this three times on Friday by Saturday, they should be going to be good. And this was... This was some the of the youth kids that I that work with. That the youth that you work yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were putting them into a pressure situation with... In uh, Manhattan. Right. And I told them, I said, let's do it this way. We'll practice on Friday in front of the community we know in Queens, and then we'll go to Manhattan. So, you know, I think expectation is really important. So if people know that they're coming to a work in progress, then they know they're coming to a work in progress. If people know they're coming to a reading, then they know they're coming to a reading. But if people are coming to see a show then there's an expectation of a show, right? Mm -hmm. So that it has to be pretty high production values. So I'm thinking that these kinds of exercises and these kinds of uh, techniques to help this particular population um, is also what anyone would have to deal with. Absolutely. In all situations or in any kind of acting class, you come. everybody comes in with their story. With something. With their story. And so I'm starting to guess some of those things and try and intuit them. Like one time this guy, I brought a rapper in and he had on fatigue, military fatigue pants, you know, which was just sort of style and hip and cool, I guess. And I looked at this girl from Iraq. This was 2009. And I remember that she had told me the story that she was almost kidnapped in Iraq and like and she was a little kid and she was looking at military fatigue pants all the time and when he came in I saw her look at his pants and she wasn't you know and then I was looking at his pants and I wasn't looking at his pants as oh my god you know I was looking at his pants going I wonder what she's seeing so you don't know what people are living with you know I think when you end up with um, all a lot of stories about Iraq war vets snapping. You know, if there's not a process and mental health and some way for them to deal with that stuff, then yes, the truth is people can snap because mm-hmm. we do have fight or flight in us. And, and that's it. And I do want to refer people back to our other radio shows about the Trauma Resource Institute, Trauma Resiliency Model, that uh, the shows I've done uh, with Elaine Karras Miller, uh, really important work being done with veterans, being done in trauma situations. And people can go on the web and yes, get and, to and those go links. to my website and also weru.org or belfastmainacupuncture.org and find those. And I think those really dovetail, as it were, with what we're talking about um, because and, there are all yeah. these different levels of of working with the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And things happen from your parasympathetic nervous system that you're not, that can surprise you or be a mystery. Um, I really briefly, because we're running out of time, but I had a couple of minutes. I had a car accident that was uh, really bad. I physically was fine, but the car hit me really hard. And, you know, your brain is kind of surrounded by fluids. And so it did something. And I definitely was in a heightened state of vigilance and being hypervigilant. Oh, my God. The thing I couldn't take at the time more than anything was deception. 
you know. So it's a good Speak thing. Speak the truth, it, it's or a else. Good, well, like, it's a good <laughs> thing I wasn't like buying a house or something, um, right? Because there's <laughs> deception all the time. Um, but I ended up breaking out in hives in certain kinds of stress. That's right. The body-mind connection, it's amazing. And my doctor said, oh, yeah, well, the back of your brain is releasing a certain amount of blood, and probably this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening, but you may need to just take Zyrtec, you know? (laughs) It was like, um, but, and then figure out how to stay out of those certain, and that had never happened to me before. So it was really scary because I looked at myself in the mirror and and Warren too. We were like, "What the hell just happened to my face?" <laughs> I had this like gigantic blow up, um, and you have to be really careful because you can stop breathing, right? Yeah. You can have an anaphylactic. And so I was just like, "Oh my trauma, god!" Trauma, trauma, trauma. My body, and it was just like, "Am I going to be like this?" For the rest of my life, you know, it was very, very, very scary. And then that made me realize, wow, I wonder if that happened to me. What if somebody doesn't have health care and they can't go be a detective and find out what's causing this or get some help to fix it? Mm. It must be even more scary. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So, oh, like, it's, it's, okay. so what I want to talk about as we end is, so you vote the kids Anyway, are that open. happened to me. So I figured if it happened to me and I was doing the same yes. things, because I was doing the same thing they were doing. My director was saying, you know, it's a little stiff, your show. And I said, no, I was like out there. And he said, no, no, your hand is here. It's not way out here. So if that was happening to me. I started seeing it more easily in other people. That's Does it. that make sense? That is. That's good. So. Class is over, which it just about is here. Class is over. Bringing it back together, bringing people. So those kids, do you do something to just calm them down? Yeah, we always do a closing ritual. That's good. Yeah. So our closing ritual is uh, thank you, Judith Sloan. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We've been speaking today with Judith Sloan. Her website is earsay, that's E-A-R-S-A-Y dot O-R-G. Today's program will be archived as well. So if you've missed any part of our show you can and you want to share it with everybody you know, please uh, tune into W-E-R-U dot O-R-G. Thanks so much, Judith Sloan, for being our guest on Healthy Options. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance. Thank you all for listening and supporting W-E-R-U Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Fine. Simon, wishing you all good health. Uh, WERU is going to be off the air for about five minutes while we do some quick repairs to our transmitter. We will be right back, so stick with us. Melisenda is here to bring you on the wing, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.